From my barnyard to yours, it's The Other Animals for September 10th, 2022. I'm Laurent Levy. Thanks for checking us out. I hope you're enjoying uh, the upcoming fall season and back to school and, and all that entails. All right, so I, I may have mentioned this, uh, but I live in a, in a suburban area in eastern Pennsylvania. And for some reason, I haven't quite been able to determine my neighborhood has recently become home to at least one fox. Uh, vulpes vulpes, I think, <laughs> or red fox, I believe is the uh, correct taxonomic categorization. I'm not sure whether it really is alone, but I've, I've only seen one at a time. And I'm guessing where there's one, there's bound to be more. But like I say, in any case, I, I haven't seen I haven't seen uh, this fox with any others. It seems to be a a lone uh, a lone soul out there. Uh, and so I don't know what he is, but in any case, for convenience, I'll, I'll use the masculine pronoun. Though again, I I don't have any way of knowing. I don't have a way of knowing. He moves around from yard to yard, skittish to be sure, but uh, completely docile. He's just hanging out or catching some rays. When I first saw him, I admit I had mixed reactions. I was knowing surprisingly very little about them. Should I be defensive? Could he be aggressive? Is he dirty? Is he carrying diseases? Should I be worried about rabies? What about my cats? Indoor, though they normally should be. Well, once I determined he exhibited the classical behavior of appearing more afraid of me than me of him... I became content to merely observe, noticing that any sudden movement on my part would send him scurrying. Still, I, I found myself remaining a bit apprehensive, trying to get a sense of just what this little critter is all about. Uh, let me be clear about it. He's not cute, at least not in a traditional sense. He's got a white snout tipped by a black nose, an orange angular head, and dark pointy ears. His eyes have a no-nonsense air about them, always returning my gaze directly, giving off something of a don't mess with me and I won't mess with you sort of directive to which I willingly comply. My curiously cautious reaction got me thinking about why these creatures have been so historically and mercilessly the number one target of hunting, particularly in the UK, also in our minds now with the changing of the monarchy dominating the daily news. As you probably know, fox hunting, as we've come to know it from movies and literature, was banned in the UK back in 2004. However, that law, known simply as the Hunting Act, carries many of the same loopholes as our own Animal Welfare Act or the International Whaling Ban. And according to a pre-COVID article from the British journal The Conversation, the traditional fox hunt is still very much happening there. In 2019, according to this article, there were at least 150 documented instances of illegal fox hunts throughout the realm. The online version of this article included some videos of people who call themselves hunt sabs, short for saboteurs, directly intervening in the hunt, even rescuing a fox. It also shows the very aggressive and almost violent reactions by the hunters when they come upon these sabs. I assure you, the image of British decency and propriety is nowhere to be found, with the hunters dropping as many threats and F-bombs as would make their American counterparts blush. I'm going to go ahead and put that video and that article up on, on my website if you want to go take a look at it. In light of my conversation last episode with Ingrid Newkirk and her description of being jailed for direct action, along with the face-to-face -face encounter with my own neighborhood fox, this got me thinking again whether I would intervene 
Should a pack of jerks and silly outfits with big hats with a pack of hounds come riding into my suburban neighborhood on their trusty steeds? To help with that dilemma, I found an actual book entitled The Traditional Art of Hunt Sabotage, A Tactics Manual. While the book is published by a group called the Hunt Saboteurs Association, the author, him or herself, as you can imagine, is anonymous. Alas, he or she won't be on the podcast anytime soon. But just the fact that such an organization exists, that it is organized and funded and is willing to intervene, apparently fully legally, on behalf of another species, well, it gives me hope. Don't mess with my neighborhood fox is all I have to say. All right. Uh, speaking of hope, we got a very inspirational show today, I think, including a conversation with Kathy Stevens, who left her comfortable teaching job to start the Catskill Animal Sanctuary. And she hasn't looked back. Her story and bravery is simply remarkable, and you won't want to miss it. We're also going to be rejoined by author and New York Times contributor Emily Anthes, who, as you may recall, spoke with us a few years ago about Frankenstein's cat. That was her book at the time, and uh, so-called biotech and the really creepy and weird things that science is doing to manipulate animals. Well, last week, she published this pair of articles dealing with uh, animal translation and uh, research into animal communication. Could a Google Translate be on the horizon for us? Yeah, who knows? All coming up right after a quick peek at Animals in the News. All right, I think we have time just for, for one quick one today. Uh, this article comes from Plant-Based News. And um, although COVID may have slowed down the expansion of vegan restaurant options in the U.S., that definitely does not seem to be the case in other parts of the world. For example, last month in Vienna, our old friends Burger King uh, took the next step with a completely, totally vegan location. Now, this is different from you know just offering the Impossible Whopper. This is this is a Burger King, a Burger King uh, that is completely vegan. Uh, the new the new plant based spot is located in Vienna's Westbahnhof district. And according to an Instagram post by Vegan Society Austria, it will remain meat-free as long as as long as customer demand remains high. Prior to the reopening of the restaurant, Burger King Austria posted an Instagram video of workers putting up 100% vegan signs outside. The text reads, "The glow of the year." I, I admit I don't I don't quite understand it. That's something got lost in translation. The glow of the year. Um, it adds that the, the new menu will include ingenious vegan burgers and nuggets by the Vegetarian Butcher, a Dutch plant-based meat brand. It will also feature vegan bacon from the French brand La Vie. The new vegan restaurant follows a recent campaign by Burger King Austria called Normal oder mit Fleisch, which means uh, normal or with meat. A brief consumer trial in Margaretengürtel, I hope I pronounced that right, in Vienna, saw uh, saw customers asked if they wanted their order as standard, plant-based, or with meat. This was an attempt to demonstrate that meat doesn't always have to be the default. Jan Christoph Küster, marketing director at the TQSR Group, Austrian master franchisee of Burger King, said the campaign was intended to stimulate social debate. Meat is one option, he continued, but it is not the only one. The new Vienna location isn't Burger King's first plant-based restaurant. The fast food chain has trialed vegan spots in Spain, the UK, and Switzerland. 
Belgium hasn't seen a fully plant-based restaurant yet, but its meatless options are a hit. The chain's marketing uh, manager, Vic Dressen, recently confirmed that one in three Whoppers sold in the country is meat-free. He added that pushing plant-based options is a conscious choice from the chain. Burger King is fully committed to sustainability, he said. In the UK, the fast food chain has even pledged to turn half of its menu plant-based by 2030. Yeah, right? you know, no, no. Uh, we've talked about this in the past. Uh, uh, it, it's great. Clearly, uh, Burger King is is progressive. They're looking, uh, but but they're looking at the bottom line, which is fine. That's a win-win, I, I, I guess. <laughs> um, but uh, we'll take it, right? So, um, uh, hats off to them and and to uh, our counterparts over there in in Europe who. Um, Seem to be a step ahead of us, at least in this. Uh, and I'm still waiting on, I'm still waiting on Arby's. You're gonna go, my friend. I've, I've said this for a couple years, but Arby's, someday, someday, you will not be all about the meats. All right, uh, quick break here, and when we come back, my conversation with Emily Anthes, who's gonna answer the burning question: Did my cat just try to hit on me? All right, don't go away. Before he was a major league pitcher, threw a no hitter, and then a perfect game. Before he made history. Mark Burley was just a kid, cut from his high school team twice. Before Bear taught himself to predict seizures and inspired thousands by saving his owner's life. Before he became a hero, he was just another dog in a Texas animal shelter. There's hidden potential in all of us. We just need someone to see it. Find it at adoptapet.com. If I could walk with the animals, talk with the animals, Grunt and squeak and squawk with the animals. And they could talk to me. Hey, Emily Anthes is an award-winning science journalist and author. She's a reporter at the New York Times, where she covers human and animal health, as well as other topics related to animal science. She's also the author of three books, uh, The Great Indoors 2020, Frankenstein's Cat 2013, which we talked about a couple years ago, and Instant Egghead Guide the Mind that came out in 2009. A couple weeks ago, she published two articles back to back a day apart in the New York Times. When one's called uh, the the Animal Translators and Did My Cat Just Hit on Me? These, these they both came out about a day apart. Uh, Emily, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, so I um. I have. I mentioned uh, the um, Frankenstein's cat, which we talked about. Uh, it's already been a couple of years ago. Do you realize it's uh, you're coming up on the tenth anniversary of that? Uh, I had not. <laughs> now, does that make, yeah, it, now make, that you make bring me, it up? Well, I bring it up because you know, you know, it's probably time for a for a second edition of that. To see all the updates. What's happened in ten years with with all that all the biotech on the animals? So you know, in, in all your copious spare time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I have thought about that, how much has changed and how quickly that that technology in particular moves. Yeah, it would be it would be interesting just to, to follow up on that. Uh, it almost seems some of that's probably, uh, I don't say obsolete, but it, it probably dramatic just what's happened in the 10 years. Uh, all right. So let's so let's look at this. So these these articles, like I said, they both came out kind of next to each other and they're kind of a deep dive into this into, you know, I guess we call it the the Dr. Doolittle dream. You know, we've always wanted to we've always wanted to talk to uh, our animals or our, our, our non-human animals to some degree or another. And we have the fantasy. I, I mentioned the movie, you know, just actually, you know, saying 
communicating the way we communicate with each other. That's the way it's kind of, when we talk about the fantasy way of, of humans communicating with non-humans, that's not what this is all about, right? This research is not trying to, is not trying to go there. This research is trying to understand the, the basic tenets of the very species uh, communicating both from an internal, how they communicate with each other and potentially how they communicate externally. Is that sort of a fair place to start? Yeah, though, I, it's definitely about how animals communicate to each other. I don't know that it's much, it's not really intended to get animals to communicate with humans per se. It's more, I sort of talk about it and think about it as sort of very high-tech eavesdropping on what mm -hmm. animals are saying to each other. And and so what are some of the, talk about some of the techniques that the scientists are using to, to try, because it seems to me like that's such a difficult like where do you start, right? Where do you start if you if you know nothing about uh, about the 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 language or the syntax or the inflection of a language? Like there, where, where is what are the scientists? What's the research doing to even give them a baseline? Yeah, I mean there are, there are different approaches and different goals. I mean, so one way to approach it is you know, communication schemes have building blocks. You know, I'm hesitant to use the word language. Most scientists try and stay away from the word language, but, you know, when we speak, we have syllables that are arranged into words that are arranged into sentences that create meaning. And so you can, and scientists are starting to break animal communication down into discrete small parts. So, you know, maybe rodents emit vocalizations that are sort of sound like complex songs, but they're made up of different notes and syllables. And so one way to start is to just break it down into the smallest auditory unit you can and to try to look for patterns, mm -hmm. um, you know, and then finding meaning in that is much harder. But, you know, the first thing to do is to look for structure and, and syntax. And I would imagine how if they're analyzing the community, the interest, like you start off with, say, for example, the mole rat, how they uh, speaking with each other, how the listener is responding, right? The, the the mole rat who's listening to the speaking role mat, mole rat is uh, is confirming is 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 taking some sort of action based on the what the what the speaking rat is doing, right? That's that. So they're not they're not just relying on auditory interpretation. They're they're actually there's some visual cues as well, right? Yeah, I mean, so in order to make sense of and decipher meaning in in these auditory communications, I mean, the the programs and the algorithms can find patterns in the audio data, but you do also need to correlate that to what's happening in the real world. So whether that is how the animal that's speaking is behaving in that moment, what it's experiencing, as you said, what the receiving animal is doing. Yes. Yeah, so you're looking for patterns, not just in the audio itself, but in the behavior of mm -hmm. the animal. So what have they found so far? Like if, if uh, let's say, we, in addition to uh, the, the rats, we had the, uh, the, the fruit bats, uh, the Egyptian fruit bats. So that was, that's sort of a whole different model. But the uh, it's, it's the same approach, right? Now they're 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 giving each other not necessarily warnings like like the mole rats are like, hey, there's an intruder coming, but they're it's it's of interest to themselves, right? The the communication is not uh, it's not abstract; it's very purposeful. It was, is is that fair to say? Well, it's a little bit hard to say what sort of the purpose of 
of, of some of these things are. Um, and that's sort of another place you have to be careful. I mean, what scientists have found is that there appears to be a lot of information encoded in the sounds that bats are making. So they can find differences between these bats in particular tend to fight a lot and they can find differences in how the vocalization sound if the bats are fighting over food versus over mating versus over sleeping. And so all that information appears to be encoded in the, the audio information and the squeaks and squeals that they're making. It's not clear yet how much of that information the bats are using. So like computers can tell the differences between the sounds made in these different scenarios. But the next question is, can the bats tell the difference and do they react to and act upon that information? Mm -hmm. So there's certainly the potential there for it to be meaningful in the real world. It's interesting. Again, so if you use the concept of, of eavesdropping, right? So we're, we're just sort of watching or in, in this case, listening combining the visual and auditory cues to see kind of what, what's what's really going on there. But I, I'm curious, as I, and as I was reading the article, like this particular research is focusing, you know, really on, on the auditory and, and decoding and finding these patterns. There's a whole, to me, it's, there's a whole another branch of, of, of um, the species communication. And I'm thinking of like the, the bees that do the, the, do the little waggle dances that tell, you know, that they're very complex, but they're very um, informative, right? They can, give them a path and, and a navigation to where is, where is the honey? Did, did that research work? Uh, is that taking that into account too, in terms of what, what the visual cues are to supplement what the auditory cues are? Are, are they working or does this? I mean, not, not the projects that I focused on. I mean, you're absolutely right that animals communicated in all sorts of ways, including, you know, in modalities that we humans don't use. I mean, think yeah. about even closer to home, like how much dogs communicate through scent. So right. like sound is just a small part of animal communication. Yeah. Um, it's where a lot of these researchers have started because it's sort of a, seems like a more approachable problem. We happen to have computer programs and algorithms that are very good at decoding sound, but it, you're right that it's just a, a small piece of the world of animal communication. Well, it, it's small, but I, it, it's a, it's a component and it's um, I, what I'm, what I'm thinking is it, we have a little bit of a bias. I think and we, mm -hmm. the, the research is right because we as humans are really dependent on it. I mean, we, we pack so much into, into, of oral communication, uh, we couldn't even imagine, you know, life without it. But I think, I think, from a non-human perspective, it it may not be uh, the the end all be all that that we ascribe to it as humans. But the, so, but I mean that the research then is is curious, right? Is like if what's your sense of, out of having researched all the researchers of what they're really after? I guess is what I'm trying to ask is like, what, what do you think? What do you think they, if, if we put aside that, the, that we're not really looking for interspecies, but we're intra, what do they, what do we think we're going to, we're going to really glean from, um, from this research? What, what are they hoping for? I mean, I think it, some level the same reason that sort of like any biologist or zoologist or ecologist does that work, which is that these are people that are just inherently fascinated yeah, with yeah. what animals do and how they behave and how their societies are structured. I mean, there are some more practical applications that we can definitely talk about, but I think the driving motivation for a lot of these researchers is just like wanting to understand more about 
these animal lives and like how they're organized and how they encounter and respond to the world. They're curious, which yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually find that a little comforting because I mean, I would actually would like to talk about the practice because there is this element that we, we can think in the back of our minds, particularly as we got to the, to the whales, uh, which we'll talk about, in the, I guess in a second, but you know, we, when you talk about the whales, you can't help but, but think about the dolphins and how communication was potentially even exploited, right? We can strap a mind to, we can use a, there's a military application, you know, and, and you cringe, you know, are, are we going to actually uh, use this communication potential uh, capabilities to be exploitative in some way, to, to sort of make the animals do something that they don't. I mean, for example, right, when we talked a couple of years ago and we were talking about um, the, um, it was the beetles uh, the, and they put the things in inside the, the electrodes in their, in their brain to actually make, make the right, to make the, it go left or go right to the point that the, the insect itself really had lost control. That's not, but that's not where this research is going. At least that's not what you're, what we're we're thinking about. At least in terms of of the practical application. Fair to say. Yeah, I mean, and the researchers themselves are definitely aware of some of the ethical potential ethical issues here um, and ethical challenges. You know, I had a great quote that unfortunately didn't make it into the story, but you know, one scientist saying, you know, hypothetically, imagine that we do decode dolphin communication and we figure out how to say in dolphin, whatever that is, uh -huh. you know, hey, come over here, there are a lot of fish. And we could play that through underwater speakers maybe and attract all these dolphins and capture them and, and trap them. I mean, so again, like this is a little bit hypothetical. Yeah. We're not on the verge of that, but it's not hard to think about how this could go awry if it advances. Yeah. So what do you, what are the, the practical aspects? What, what is... Well, so I think the closest near-term one, well, there are two actually, um, one for wild animals and one for domestic ones. And they both have to do with something that's sort of like very achievable with the science we already have, which is sort of monitoring welfare. So some of the basic studies that have already been done show that like we can distinguish between the sounds that mice and chickens and pigs make when they're, you know, happy, content, and the sounds that they make when they're distressed, stressed, in pain. And so it's not very hard to imagine how you might use that on a farm, for instance. Um, you know, you could have constantly running speakers, sound is easy and cheap to collect and maybe get early warning, um, early warning signals if, you know, you have a pig that's sick or, or in pain or struggling. Um, and, and, and similarly, you could imagine doing something similar in nature, though. So there's a lot of interest in, in monitoring sound and collecting sound to monitor the health of an ecosystem. Um, mm -hmm. So some of what these systems can do is actually distinguish between the voices of individual animals. So you could potentially use these systems to estimate like, okay, like how many crows are out there this year and to sort of track fluctuations in population density, oh, size, well-being. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so some of that monitoring is is not super far away. I, I think it's it's fairly achievable. And, and is supplementing like uh, tried and true techniques like tagging them or putting bands on. Like I, I can see it from what you're talking like enhancing uh, migratory. Uh, you know, you're looking at different patterns of birds, even uh, butterflies. You know, or cer certain um, you know certain large groups of of animals that do these things uh, from an environmental perspective without having to necessarily tag them. But you're saying like listen to them 
up in the sky and the yeah. ground, whatever. That's pretty it, cool. It's non-invasive and it's fairly cheap. There's a lot of interest in it. And I mean, I think that is certainly coming, um, you know, audio collecting large scale audio data from ecosystems. Very, very interesting. All right. So if, if we, if we get away for the moment from the, um, <laughs> from the large ego to the let's bring it home so your the other article that that came out right around that same time was uh was the brought right back to the domestic is my cat <laughs> hitting on me so i i was i i really enjoyed that one and, and i i was a little bit as reading that well we're, we're doing this research on essentially our domestic our companion animals and if you're if you're you know tried and true you know, dog or cat person, there's going to be an element which is like, oh, I don't, I don't need millions of dollars of research to know that my cat is, uh, you know, is hungry or, or my, my dog wants to go outside. Um, but that, again, that's not, that's not what this is about. Tell us a little bit about that, where that research is really uh, focusing on. Yeah. So, I mean, it's based on the same general principle we talked about, and there's good evidence that software can do things like tell apart meows that cats make in different circumstances. So mm -hmm. like it can with fairly high accuracy, like determine the difference between a sound that cat a cat makes when it's relaxed and the sound that a cat makes when it's stressed. Mm -hmm. So that's totally achievable. I mean, what this app does goes a bit farther than that. And it runs, it analyzes the sound your cat makes, it assigns it to one of nine different sort of categories or, or contexts. And then it presents sort of a plain English translation. And that's really where it starts to go beyond what the sciences, you know, like it might say like, I'm so happy to see you or let me rest. Or in my case, you know, my cat made something that sounded to this program, like a mating call and the app gave me the translation, like, Hey baby, let's go somewhere more private. And so that starts to get, uh, yeah. in my case, a bit creepy. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, certainly a bit beyond where the science is. Right. Well, the other thing with that I thought was funny in, in that article was, um, I mean, you're, it sort of envisions itself as an app. That's kind of the next Google translate for a small fee, right? Where in other words, you, you could either get, you know, you listen to the message and if you want to hear it, you got to watch the ad. Or you subscribe, and then you get all, all your translations uh, included. Uh, how how legit do you see these? Do you see those as really bona fide, or is is there a little bit of a just uh, it's it's the coolest new app, so you got to get it? Yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing and the thing that surprised me a little bit was like even the apps creators. I talked to several of the co-founders and and the researchers, and they all said like this isn't pure science at this point. This is science plus entertainment. So like, I, you know, I, yeah. I think it's, we can certainly expect apps that can sort our, our pets vocalizations into categories. I think the really hard thing and the thing that we have not yet done is like figure out what those categories mean. Yeah. Um, and, and that's where we still are quite in the dark. Well, cause the category, the categories, well, what do you mean? So the, the, the categories from within their, uh, from their own perspective, like. Yeah. I mean, like, so like at the very basic level, say like this meow is different. It ha has different auditory characteristics than the meow from this morning. Like they, they sound different and they can sort of reliably sort meows into categories based on their acoustic and auditory properties. 
but then I think it's so. So one example I talk about briefly in the article is purring, right? So the mm -hmm. app is very good at detecting purring accurately and distinguishing it from all the other sounds your cat makes. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, that's not surprising because purring is such a unique sound. It doesn't sound like anything else. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, like with like 99% accuracy, it can tell purring apart from other sounds your cat makes. Okay. The question, though, is what on earth does purring mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, purring is sort of famously mysterious and elusive. Cats do it in all sorts of different categories, um, all sorts of different circumstances. And the app sort of defaults to assuming that purring means the cat is resting or wants to rest. So if it detects your cat purring, it'll say something like, let me rest or I want to relax. And so I have no doubt that the, that the app is accurately detecting when my cat is purring. What I'm not sure about is what on earth that purr means. Yeah. I mean, they're notorious using cats, right? They'll, they'll purr if you're on your lap and you, it's a, we, we generally interpret it as uh, contentment. They're peaceful, but I've got a cat that will purr when I'm, when stressed out at the, at the vet, uh, they'll purr right before, uh, getting fed, which is almost an, an anxiety time. So I've imagined that's kind of, Right. Yeah, they purr when they're in pain. They famously purr when they give birth. I mean, like purring is a great <laughs> example because like it's still sort of a mystery to a lot of, of scientists. And so like, it's one thing to say like, great, we could detect purring, but like, it's a lot harder to figure out like, well, what is the cat communicating in that moment? Yeah. And, and um, again, I'm thinking that it's not like, like <laughs> we, we have our ways of, with, again, with our dogs and cats where, you know, one of the famous questions, you know, do you talk to your dog? Well, everybody does something, right? We, we know, even we'll go high pitch, you know, here, kitty, kitty, because we, we think that they respond to that. Um, but they're responding to, uh, they're responding, again, I think not just to our, our vocal, uh, they're responding to us being in their presence. They're responding to the to the way our, our, the bottom of our pants feel as they, as they rub against it. Um, the, and we get, again, communicative tools like we we're talking about earlier what what's their tail doing what's the direction of their ear uh ears um even in the fur is the fur coming up or coming down or are they stressed or, or are they um you know so there's all there's all these cues that go along with the with the auditory aspect of uh of the of the communication puzzle i guess i'm not sure what the question is and all that but, but it just it just seems like like from from a uh, from our dogs and cats perspective, uh, we we are able to discern probably a little more than uh, I don't I don't or do you see the the Google Translate example of, of me going to say um, uh, Kitty today you're getting you're getting tuna instead of beef and then having the machine go ew, 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 and the cats oh thank you you know that's not what I want it was from menus like. Uh, <laughs> I mean, is that far fetched? You know, to, to be able to get to that point where we're we're getting beyond simple emotional and actual getting to, you know, the abstract uh, aspect of the language, or that's not that's not where we're heading with this. Yeah, I mean, I think the idea of like having a true conversation with your cat is—I'm not sure we're ever going to get there. You know, yeah. like I don't know that cats communicate in the same sort of like symbolic abstract way that humans do. Um, but, but I mean, I think the other thing and, and the thing that some of the scientists I talked to pointed out is like, of course, in other ways, we are all communicating with our pets all the time. Mm -hmm. Like even without this app and you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. like I, 
I have a cat and a dog and I usually feel like I have a pretty good sense on like what they want when they're bothering me. Right. Um, so there are lots of ways in which we already communicate across species lines that doesn't rely on having any fancy technology. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I, I've always sort of thought about with the, with the whole uh, concept of, of, you know, non-human communication is, you know, we, we, you know, I've talked about it on the show a lot, but we're all, humans and non-human we're, we're all over the board you know somewhere it can be really great to them or we can be really crappy to them and i always thought that if 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 we're if we're in the, the situation where it's the latter and we're doing something really we're in a i don't mean to be morbid you're in a slaughterhouse you're in something where or doing some really gruesome medical research on on you know beagles where they, they put thousands of flies on their head and watch what happens well i always wondered if if the animal could communicate and say, Hey, this hurts, please stop doing this. Would that make a difference? You know, and if, if the community, you know, if, if we had a device that, that the, the beagle barks three times and the machine comes back and says, please stop this. Would the would that really have an impact on the researchers? And, uh, I, my, I tend to, to be, uh, uh, I don't think it would because the, I think they know that already. Right. I think I think we know the animals are actually pretty, pretty good at expressing when they're when they are in in distress. Do, you, do you, I'm just curious, did, is that aspect in there where if 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 they could talk to us and say, hey, please cut this out. Do you think it would make a difference? <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, I, the first thing I think of is that does raise an interesting philosophical question. Just like, are we sure we always want to know what animals yeah, are saying? Yeah. And, you know, the answer probably depends on the person and the circumstance. But, you know, that could raise some interesting ethical questions as well and philosophical questions. Like, are we ready to hear what they have to say yeah. if we can? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it's interesting. And to bring it back you know, to, to what the baseline is, we may not, if we really get to a point, I'm just sort of we may be astonished. There may be elements in there that we couldn't even fathom of, of what actually they're saying that, that are beyond our, our uh, capabilities that we don't even, we can't even uh, begin to imagine. Right. So, so yeah. where do you, yeah. yeah. All right. All right. So um, I just it, wrapping up. So where, where do you see this in the, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of exciting, uh, you know, where they're going, where do you see it in a, how do you see this uh, where do you see this going in a couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I think the technology is moving pretty fast. And the thing about machine learning systems, too, is the more data you feed them, the better they get. Mm -hmm. So, like, I have no doubt that we will learn amazing new things about animal lives, animal communication, animal societies through this research. I, I mean, it seems clear that it can teach us new things about their social communication and, and their social lives. You know what? How much beyond that it goes, and whether it goes beyond that, I think is harder to say right now. But I mm -hmm. think the sort of from a sheer sense of wonder, gee whiz perspective, that it's cool. Yeah. I think there will be some cool findings. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. All right, listen. This is uh, uh, Emily Anthes, writer for the New York Times. Uh, recent articles. I, I will have them up on on my website here as soon as we get the the podcast up uh, about animal translation. And it is my cat. Uh, did my cat just hit on me? Uh, Emily, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Okay. Yeah, that's the the always fascinating Emily Anthes. I, I, I really enjoy speaking with her. Um, 
definitely looking for that update to Frankenstein's cat too, by the way. All right, one quick break here and then my conversation with Kathy Stevens about her, her very unique uh, sanctuary called the Catskill Animal Sanctuary. Um, don't go away. If we continue to consume our natural resources at the rate we do now, by 2050, it could take three Earths to meet our needs. The Earth can't speak up when it needs help, but we can. Be the voice for those who have no voice. Visit worldwildlife.org. When I see my fellow man consuming sirloin steak, and I find myself enjoying tea and dundee cake, there is really only one conclusion I can make. I'm a devoted vegetarian. Kathy Stevens is the co-founder of the Catsco Animal Sanctuary. It's up in uh, beautiful Sagardes, New York. Um, her love of teaching, her belief that education has the power to, to transform, and her love of animals all came together in this project that she she started back in 2001. The Catsco Animal Sanctuary is one of the world's leading sanctuaries for farm animals. It has saved more than 5,000 non-human individuals through direct rescue and most likely exponentially more through programming that encourages humans to adopt uh, veganism. She's the author of Where the Blind Horse Sings and Animal Camp, which are two critically and popularly acclaimed books about the work of Catskill Animal Sanctuary. And she's also a contributor to books, podcasts, and articles on animal sentience, animal rights, and veganism. Kathy, welcome to the other animals. Hey, Lauren. Thanks for having me on. Happy to be with you and your audience. So tell us, uh, I, I'm just so intrigued with, with uh, we were talking a little bit before, I mean, the, your part of the country and where the where the sanctuary happens to be located. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to be. <laughs> I, I mean, nobody just wakes up and says, I'm going to start an animal sanctuary this morning. Uh, there's there's always this moment I found, uh, of, I guess you'd almost call it epiphany, that, that something, something happens that says you, you've reached a, a critical moment, a, a, a breaking point maybe. Tell us what, what that was for you. How did how did this come to be? Sure. I had grown up in the South in a, on a horse farm. Uh, my dad was a thoroughbred breeder and trainer, and I rode horses literally from the time I was three and um, left. And, and so I always had an affinity for animals because on that farm, in addition to having horses, we had a couple of goats, we had dogs and cats, we had a couple of cows. And so I had, not only did I have a privileged childhood in lots of very obvious ways, but I, I also had the privilege of knowing that animals were so much more than most people have the opportunity to know. It wasn't a perfect childhood. My parents couldn't stand each other. You know, there were all mm -hmm. kinds of things that weren't great about it. Mm -hmm. But from just having a reverence from for animals at a very young age was was such a, a gift. Mm -hmm. I moved to the Northeast. Well, let, let, let me ask you, just, at that point, so I'm curious, uh, if most of the time in, in, on a farm, in a farm situation, um, the farm, the, I'm sorry, the, the, the farm animals, th there's a reason they're there, right? They're, they, uh, to some degree or another, there we're going to either use the chicken's eggs or we're going to use the cow's milk or we're going to use all of their and the pig's flesh. Was this the case on, on your farm and did, did you have a reaction to that? Well, we only had in terms of food animals, the only food animals we had was were always a couple of cows. And 
we not only did we eat them, we named them, we and then we ate them. Um, and at, at the time, I honestly don't think that it would have occurred to me that one could live without eating animals. Mm -hmm. I think I think I bought as a child that unquestioned belief that if you don't have animal protein, you keel over dead. Mm -hmm. So no, I did not mm -hmm. question. Uh, okay. That. Okay. I I mean, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for for the for the moment. I'm just trying to probe to see where it was. But go ahead. So if that didn't happen, then it, it happened later. Uh, go ahead. So then you moved to you you moved. Yeah. So then I and and I also, by the way, didn't um, ask the right set of questions about how my dad made a living. Right. Like mm -hmm. if somebody had said to me, um, do the horses on your dad's farm have a good life? I would have said they absolutely do. Sure. But sure. if somebody had asked a different question to this young child, an animal lover, like should horses spend 23 hours a day in a box, for mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. I, it might have sent me down a different path, yeah. Yeah. but that didn't happen. So I moved to Boston. I went to grad school, became a high school English teacher and uh, then 10 years in was offered the opportunity to become a high school principal at a new charter school that was opening up in Brookline, uh, uh, mm -hmm. right next to Boston. Yep. And had it been a social justice school, Lauren, I would likely be there today, but it was a media and technology charter school and it was not so, so the and media and technology, I use them because I need to, but they don't hold any sort of draw for me. Mm -hmm. So I turned down that job and I shocked myself because I had always imagined that I would use the classroom or the public school as my vehicle through which to create social change on a small scale. Mm -hmm. And so I found myself at 40 years old thinking, wow, what do I want to do? do with the next 30 years of my life. And so I took some time off for the first time ever and took lots of long walks and did lots of writing. And what came to me was that I, that I was, that I wanted to find a way to, to combine my two greatest passions. One was a love for animals, despite all those inconsistencies from my childhood and one was a love of teaching and learning. And there was sort of a light bulb moment when I, and, and, um, and, and then I jumped into a period of research when, while there were plenty of sanctuaries, even back then kind of dotted around the country, none were doing the educational piece in a way that I thought needed to be done because in those interim decades between leaving the farm and starting the animal sanctuary, I had become not quite vegan, but an almost vegan, uh, partly initially for health and then, and then more. And then toward the end when I was very near vegan for ethical reasons, and I just didn't see a model within the sanctuary movement of, of the kind of, uh, educational experience that I thought really sh should be happening for farm animals. So, so, 
you're you're not kidding when you're saying you really you really did combine uh your educational background with with the sanctuary um yeah. that that that's it sounds like what you're saying is that is that's a cornerstone and almost a a differentiator between you know the the, the Catskill sanctuary and I don't know Mr. all of them but but that that is, seems to be that that is that is central to the mission of what of what your sanctuary is all about would you say that's fair oh it's absolutely fair it's oh. who we've been from the first day um, so it's you know it's interesting as as you're describing that um I think a lot of people sort of have that fantasy like I'm just not going to take this anymore I, I this is this is not meaningful to me uh and they go look for for something else but they don't do it uh, they don't do it the way you did, where you, where you just said, "I'm not." For example, I'm not taking this promotion. I'm just going to not do this because everybody's worried about you know paying the rent. That that's kind of courageous what you did there, which is to say, uh, "I I don't want to do this anymore. I don't know what I want to do, but I'm not I'm not going to keep doing what I don't want to do, and I, and I am going to, as you said, take time off." Was that a uh, was that a a, a nerve wracking or or scary period of your life? Um, from a financial point of view, a little bit, I, I live a modest life. I've never, I don't have a fancy car. I've never had a bit, I don't desire, um, things that cost a lot of money, <laughs> I guess. So, um, that, that was a, a, a truth that, and I had saved up a little, a little money. I also had a partner who was an actor and he made a decent living so that that um enabled made us feel a little mm-hmm. sense of security but mainly Lauren you know what I knew that I that I needed time that if I had jumped right back into something else it would have been it would have been yeah, yeah. it was it been one one pain for the so I mean you clearly you made the it was a it was a well thought out uh, and you took the you took the time. It, it's it's just a good. I think it's a good life lesson. You know, people listening and thing. You know, because it's um you know particularly for for people who have a love of animals, they want to do something. You know, and, and uh, sometimes you just need to take that to take that time. Um. All right. So so now we fast forward a little bit, and uh, tell us how we how we got to the actual building and founding of of the sanctuary. Well, um, my partner at the time, Jesse, and I had a tiny little, he was, he needed to be in the city because in New York City because of his work. Um, And I said to him, I do not care if it is the size of an outhouse. I have to have a place in the woods. I have to be able to put my feet in the grass. I have to be able to smell clean air. And so we bought a tiny house. We bought a little house um, up here and it became um, initially our weekend place, but then a place that, that we were spending increasing amounts of time. And I just, when I, when I landed on, Oh, I really want to establish a teaching sanctuary I just had this calm sense of knowing that mm. it would happen. Mm-hmm. I had watched my dad, who um, came from a very sort of simple, humble background, create one of the world's 
one of the country's leading um, breeding and training facilities for horses. And so even though it was in some ways what I was doing was diametrically opposed to what he was doing, it was still a matter of taking land and turning it into something and putting in the roads and putting in the buildings. And I just knew that we could do it. I just mm -hmm. don't know how else to say it. Mm -hmm. And so we held a public meeting and put up our mission, put up our vision, told a little bit about about our backgrounds and why we were qualified um, to do it. And a woman put her hand up and stood, first of all, like out in the middle of nowhere, about 75 or 80 people came, which was shocking. Wow. Wow. And secondly, this woman stood up in the audience and said, I have a piece of property that's not being used. I would entertain this as a possibility. So long story short, she, she, this was a woman who lived a quarter mile down the road from us on, at our little house that we had at a, as a weekend place. We drove past her house every day. She had 50 acres at, with a small barn and a couple of run-ins and she had maybe two horses and two cows. She had loads of space and wasn't doing a thing with it. Hmm. And we were able to set up there um, for free, which gave us the breathing room to become a credible entity in mm -hmm. this community mm -hmm. to put together our board of directors to begin rescue on a small scale to recruit volunteers and um that's what enabled us to fascinating yeah that's to, to humble start. beginnings yeah so yeah, and, go ahead sorry no and then you know a year and a half later within a year and a half later we we uh we found what is now the first piece of our sanctuary and mm -hmm. relocated, but it was, it was Jill's generosity that. Enabled oh, that's us nice. To that's, that's a great story. Tell me about your first rescue. I think that's oh got, that's gotta be, uh, that's gotta be a great moment. Oh my goodness. So strategically we wanted to start with horses because we were new in this community we felt like rescuing pigs. We wanted, we remember, Laurent, we were an educational sanctuary. We wanted to win over hearts and minds and we wanted to change behavior. Mm -hmm. And we did not think that rescuing pigs and chickens yeah. was the yeah. way to introduce ourselves to the community. So we'd mm -hmm. heard about this tiny pony named Dino who was the only survivor of an arson in Brooklyn's Bergen Beach stables. A teenager had walked in, lit the barn on fire. 23 horses died. Dino was the only survivor. And we took in that little guy. He was our first rescue, followed by two big old draft horses, followed by a starving cow named, named Sammy and... Interesting. Go. So it, it it's a very very gradual. In other words, you, that issue of acceptance was very important. People would have no problem, as you say, uh, especially some that that could have been even high profile at the time. P people would have heard about. Uh, I'm sorry, D Dino was the horse's name. Dino. Like, yeah. It would, would would have heard about that and, and would have uh, you know lauded and applauded you for for doing that. Oh, good. You know that this this pony that was kind of in the news 
is going to be okay. It's got to, got a safe home. Uh, had you gone the other way though, it sounds like you're about ready to save, like rescuing, uh, you know, what we, word I kind of hate livestock animals, right? Cows and chickens and pigs. You would have got a community communal roll of the eyes like oh oh, here comes another nut into the community right i felt like we would have but also in fairness my what was my animal my animal was horses Mm -hmm. i knew Mm -hmm. pretty much everything there is to know about horses i'd been around them since i was three and uh there was gonna be a learning curve with Mm -hmm. all the others Uh, yeah well, that's what they always say, you know, start with, start with what you know in, in any endeavor, right? You don't, you don't, you know, you learned your craft. Well, this, horses would have been something you w- would have already known about. So what was, what was the, uh, as, as the sanctuary grows uh, with, with more and more uh, rescues, now you have to infuse the educational aspect of it uh, and get them going. What was that process like? Well, I mean, at my heart, I'm once a teacher, always a teacher, I guess and mm-hmm. that that's, to me, the the two greatest joys of all this work, the first is um, helping an animal who's never experienced the touch of a kind hand mm-hmm. ever, right? Who only sees people as a source of deprivation or pain or something. Yeah. Um, to know that they're safe and to know that they matter. That is the greatest joy of this mm-hmm. work. The second greatest joy is to connect good people who are not intending to harm animals, who consider themselves animal lovers, with pigs and chickens and sheep and cows who are as individual, as affectionate, as emotional as their dogs and cats, and then watch the light bulbs go off. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, watch the synapses firing. <laughs> Um, so our, we designed a special kind of tour program. We welcomed school groups and, uh, developed curriculum that was tied to New York state standards. We hired a vegan chef because we wanted people whose hearts had just been ripped wide open during a tour experience. We wanted to be able to say in that moment. Look, here's how. Here's someone who can here's help. Here's how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. How to do it. So, you know, creating the programs has been fun and interesting and and um and now of course the the challenge is to impact more people. A challenge for every nonprofit mm-hmm. that's concerned about animal suffering and climate change. How to change behavior and, among greater numbers of people and yeah, more quickly. I mean, that that's it, right? That, that's, that is always, uh, so what's your approach? How are you doing it? <laughs> Tell us, please. <laughs> well, I mean, look, isn't that everybody's right, asking yeah. the question, but I mean, we're, we're of course doing virtual programs. We've got a, we've got a program launching in October, the pilot called new leaf as in turnover a, Mm-hmm. Um, clever which is a which is a support program for people who want to go vegan but haven't been able to stick to it um where some of our educational programs are also virtual so we're doing we're doing a lot of the virtual and trying to make it substantive because it, there is no substitute for like when people come here and they sit on the ground and a turkey walks up and the turkey walks and 
and and nuzzles down into that person's lap mm-hmm. and falls asleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's no virtual reference. There's no way you're gonna, and then the, the, the challenge would be connect. Now you're going to eat that on Thanksgiving, right? That that's how that's the challenge. You, you make that connection. That like, how, how do you do that? <laughs> like if if you did that with with a with a child and a parent, you know, and, and the. And the the child's going to get that right away. Oh my God, I could never eat this. Is the parent going to resent you for doing that? Or do you, do you have to overcome that? Right? No, not what we have found often is that the children become the, the children are the reasons that the parents also become vegan. Sure. Yeah. That's my, like that's my story. That's my story. That. But go ahead. Yeah. Uh-huh. Is that right? That's my story. My, my stepdaughter, she, she did the deed and, and I was pretty, I wouldn't say I was rotten, but uh, it took some doing. And, but the, the, you know, it's, it's a classic case of the children shall lead, you know, they're, they're right. They, they it's instinctive and intuitive that they don't want to cause harm. Uh, yeah. There's a reason why children, ha- I think, have an affinity towards animals, and and uh, and somehow in the course of of aging, it gets knocked out. Well, not somehow. We 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 know how it gets knocked out. But you almost described it a little bit in your own in your own uh, childhood. And you have these these formal programs. Uh, won't name names, but yes, I will. You know, 4-H and and these others that that literally teach them how to to have children how to how to desensitize and you know raise a pig for a year then kill it. I think that's horrible, <laughs> but, but, but the fact that it has to be taught is, is very revealing, right? The child, the child doesn't want to harm, harm that, you know? No. And, uh, and I think it, that lies uh, dormant in, in adults and it just needs a, a child to reawaken it, which is, it sounds like what, what's happening on the sanctuary. A, a child or an animal. Yeah. But because a turkey falling asleep in your lap or a, a cow licking your face with affection or a sheep burying his head in your thighs like that the animals will do it every time and then if you know so the, the children are a good backup yeah for sure yeah for all right so, so tell us uh if someone uh, the sanctuary itself now um listeners will say okay this sounds really great uh you're in you're in Socrates New York so uh, let me tell us a little about where people, um, where, where that is. I know where it is. We were talking about it before, but, but where is it? How could, uh, what's a good way to get to it? And uh, tell us, you know, about uh, uh, some, some of the programs and, and uh, incentives, shall we say? Well, we are two hours north of Manhattan, one hour south of Albany, um, directly off the throughway 87 coming out of the city. And we have a beautiful uh, bed and breakfast mm-hmm. that was built um, 250 years ago that, no, 1813, 208, oh, wow. Wow. 209 years ago um, that's been fully restored with some of the old wood from the collapsed buildings that we found when we bought this ragtag property that we've been renovating for 20 years and uh so there so there's an opportunity to come and visit we've got tours every weekend we've got on-site tours every weekend we just rescued two magnificent long texas longhorn cows from a hoarding situation they're our newest um newest animals so people can come. People can come in a number of ways. You can. You're welcome. We encourage people to come 
for on-site tours every weekend. You can also sign up for a private tour on the website. If you just want to come and bring a group of friends and, and a weekday is better, we offer those seven days a week. And then the third option, again, not what I would recommend if you are within driving distance or you're visiting the area. Um, but the third option is to is to participate in our virtual sanctuary, which you can do. You can sign up for a, a program called Animals on Call and bring our sanctuary to your to your dinner party or to your lunch meeting or to your classroom. Mm -hmm. So those are the ways that people can experience the animals. We really enc uh, encourage um, the on-site. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like, like it's nice to have the virtual experience, but those, those emotional, tactile, real experiences with the, you know, the turkey in your lap that you, you can't, you can't do that virtually. And then to, to be, to be touched and moved that way. Uh, I think you, it's, it's, you have to be there. <laughs> you have to you actually, have to you have to do it. There. And yeah. we've got, we've got very skilled um, humane educators. There is absolutely no judgment. Every one of us ate, ate meat mm -hmm. for yep. Yep. some portion of our lives. We recognize that nobody's trying to torture animals. We're just yeah. trying, you know, yeah, so yeah. it's a yeah. very, very joyful, positive, welcoming experience and um we run tours through the end of november okay uh, wonderful yeah all right so so let's let's get to it so tell folks uh the website uh where can where can they go for more information and sign up and get you know actually yeah, get some of these tours it's c a sanctuary don't forget that there is a c in the word sanctuary so c a sanctuary.org and from there you can find um find our instagram our twitter our facebook etc cetera, etc cetera. and from that website you can also you can sign up for the tours you can can you actually book the uh, book the bnb you can sign up for tours. You can book the B&B. You can check out, if you're not yet vegan, check out the New Leaf program that I was talking about earlier. All of that, yeah, via the website. Absolutely. Oh, beautiful. I, I, we, I may even take you up on that because I would love to get up there and, and see it myself. Uh, wonderful. All right. Well, listen, that's uh, Kathy Stevens. She's the co-founder of Catsco Animal Sanctuary. I I, I strongly encourage people check it out I, I will certainly post the the link to the website up on on my uh website theotheranimals.com and uh i, I hope to, to talk to you again and and wish you the best of luck thanks lauren it was a pleasure and um i'd be welcome to introduce you to that turkey i was telling you about <laughs> <laughs> it's a date it's a date <laughs> be happy to do that all right <laughs> Alrighty. Right, thank you very much take care now sure thing all right, that's the podcast for this week. Um, I want to thank my guests, Emily Antis and Kathy Stevens. As always, would love to hear from you with comments, ideas, or suggestions, or if you've got a topic you'd like uh, my colleague who wasn't with us today, but uh, veterinarian Dr. Tom Picard to address, just uh, check out theotheranimals.com and, and drop us a line. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Other Animals. All right, for our next episode, one of the many ways that humans have always tried to distinguish themselves from their non-human counterparts is to claim that we and we alone are the only species that dream. Well, recent research has come to challenge that notion, and I hope to be speaking with the author of 
When Animals Dream, The Hidden World of Animal Consciousness, about what really happens and what really might be happening behind closed eyes. I hope you can check us out then. So until then, until our next show, stay safe and find a belly to rub. See you then.